0: Today, let's talk about New Year's resolutions. Uh, I went on the internet to look for the most common New Year's resolutions. And uh, so this comes with no authority. I don't know where they came up with this information. But I went to, you know, like I did my research, three different websites. And uh, they are pretty much more or less the same. So let me give you ten of the most common New Year's resolutions. And I think they kind of ring true. They they do ring true. Whether or not they're scientifically accurate and proven, I don't know. But they ring true. Number one, uh, most common resolution is to exercise more. Anyone feeling that? Feeling that too. Uh, number two, related, I suppose, is to lose weight. Although I guess what you put in your mouth uh, has a lot to do there. Number three, get organized anyone have a, a, a closet that they their resolution is to get organized or if you're a student you're just going to get your notebooks organized you're gonna you're gonna underline with a ruler i always did that for like the first week of september and january um number four learning new skill or hobby i've always wanted to do x whatever that is yeah this is the year uh, number five, this one's a bit vague. Live life to the fullest. It's very subjective. I don't know even know what that means. I suppose that's a good one. Number six, save more money, or they go together, spend less money. So to be better with your finances. That's a pretty common one too. Uh, number, I don't know what number we're on. Seven, six, seven. Quit smoking. Uh, number... Eight, spend more time with family and friends. Now, there's always a, that group that is working too hard and they, they've neglected their young kids or they've neglected their spouse or they've neglected their friends. So spend more time with family and friends. Number nine, travel more. And number 10, read more. Any, anyone, like there's some pretty good ones on that list, right? So if we could do even one of those this year, then it would be a good year. Uh, but I want to give us a different resolution to look at, and it's a, it's a biblical resolution. And before I read it to you, I just want to be clear, I am not an expert in this. This is, this is a resolution that I have, and I'm just going to share it with you. Maybe you want to add this to your New Year's resolutions. And it's not a resolution that I think we can actually fulfill. It's not one that we're going to perfect or complete, so the goal, as I read this, the goal of this resolution is to make some advance, to make some progress, to be a little more like this at the end of 2020 than you are or I am right now. This resolution comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. You might as well open there because we're going to spend some time in this part of the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. Why don't we stand while I read God's Word? As I read this, as God's Word, this is Paul who's saying that this is true of him by God's grace. And he's exhorting indirectly the readers of this letter to make this true of themselves. This is a divinely inspired resolution. This is something that God wants for each of us. This is the Word of God. 1 Timothy 6.8 If we have food and clothing with these we will be content. If We have food and clothing. With these we will be content. Let's pray. Oh God, this is not true of me. I don't know that it's true of any of us. But we do ask that as we explore this, that you would help us to make it a resolution for ourselves and for our church. I just think of what you could do with us if this were true of us. Uh, Help me, Lord, as I encourage the church this morning along these lines. Uh, Show us how this is possible. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. This is one of those verses that, yeah, do you go to it or not? Do you just skip over it? Because it's, it's just so out there. It's, it's so removed from our experience that to even suggest that this ought to be a goal for any one of us almost sounds ludicrous. This is for super Christians, not for us, right? This is for Paul. This is for Christians in poor parts of the world. This is not for Western Hemisphere capitalist Canadian Christians to be content with food and clothing. A couple of um, disclaimers before I get to it. What we are not saying is that we ought to be miserable. Notice in the verse it's talking about contentment, not misery. With these, we'll be content. We'll be happy. We'll we'll have all that we need. We'll have all that we want. Uh, We're not going to be miserable. We're not going to feel like in this constant state of total self-denial, though there is a a place for self-denial in the Gospel. If you go back to chapter 4 in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is dead against asceticism. Asceticism is this idea that you should deprive yourself of things for the sake of depriving yourself so that you can somehow feel more spiritual. And asceticism starts there and it goes to inflicting pain on oneself. Removing comforts is one thing, inflicting pain is a whole other thing. And, and there are people, Christians even, who, who have a warped theology that says the, the less pleasure that I experience in life and the more pain I endure, the more spiritual and holy I am. That is not where we're going. That's not what this verse is about. So just let's deal with that at the, first, at the front end. It's not the resolution to be more miserable, to uh, have less pleasure, to inflict more pain. That's not what we're talking about. This is not a resolution to become asceticists. It's about finding contentment outside of our material possessions. It's not easy for us. Uh, Worldliness is real, It is a poison in our veins, it's in the church. We are caught up like our unbelieving neighbors in the worldliness and materialism of 21st century Canada. It's a fact. And the problem with that is we find contentment, therefore, in the stuff that we own. General context of this verse well, a couple of years ago we went through 1st and 2nd Timothy, and what we discovered in 1st Timothy is that this is a list of 15 instructions given to the church and then expanded upon. So if we were to just implement 1st Timothy, then we would be really in line with God's vision for the church. And this verse falls into the 14th instruction that we are to so, set our hope on God, to find our contentment in God, to derive all of our pleasure in life from God, not on riches. I think we're doing fairly well in implementing First Timothy. There's so many things that we're endeavoring to do, including praying for all people. Uh, on that, just side note, I think we could be, do better as a church to gather together to pray, but we do pray together every Sunday, and that's the start. But how are we doing on this instruction, set your hope on God, not on riches? Or to put it another way, find your ultimate pleasure in Christ and the gospel and not in the stuff that you own. How are we doing? I don't know that I'm doing that well. How do we measure this? Well, I think our only measurement can be or should be progress. We, we, we do not want to turn this into some sort of legalism, asceticism. So can we make progress, though, in finding our pleasure, our hope in the gospel and not on the stuff that we own? So that's the general context. This is an instruction. It's embedded in the very letter where God is saying, this is my vision for the church. He wants to see the church's witness in the world. And he wants the world to see the church as a place where, wow, those people don't care about stuff. They care about God. And they're willing to get rid of their stuff. They're willing to even spend a lot of money on the gospel. Because that's where their joy is. That's, why, that's how this fits. These are instructions for the church. And so this is not for one or two or three of us to master. This is for the church to work toward together. Some specific context. In 1 Timothy 6 verses 3 to 5, Paul's lambasting the false teachers again. And the way, reason he gets to riches and materialism is because the false teachers thought that if they could pretend to be godly, then they would accumulate stuff that the church would pay them money. And they would, they would get rich. And that was common. All kinds of philosophies and schools and, and religions worked that way where the religious leaders made their money and made their riches, not just... Provision, but riches from the people that they taught, the churches that they taught. And so these false teachers were, were like wolves in sheep's clothing because they thought that by pretending to be godly on the outside and teaching the church that they could gain something for themselves. Take a look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-5. to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... It's the gospel. He's puffed up. He's conceited. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Without getting into those verses too much, Paul was dealing with an issue in the Ephesian church where Timothy was pastoring. He's saying there's competition for leadership of the church. There's false teachers there. And these false teachers were not only wanting godliness to bring gain to them, but they were teaching others that if you're godly, God will make you rich. So it seems like there was this weird, funky swing between asceticism on the one hand and materialism on the other and there's a uh, fight amongst all these false teachers which way should we go and paul says in chapter 4 well asceticism's wrong don't beat yourself up and deprive yourself of pleasure that's not godly and here he's addressing the other extreme you better be finding your contentment in god and the gospel if you're called by his name so that's the immediate context here. Paul then goes on in verses 6 and 7 to correct the error. He says, Look, godliness with contentment is the great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of it. So he says, You don't act in godly ways in order to gain something materially for yourself. You learn the gospel that produces godliness in you. And what is godliness? It's the outward behavior that is inspired and motivated by your convictions of the gospel. So your righteousness, which is a true understanding of the gospel, which is derived from Christ and not from self, produces outward behavior that is godly, that is in conformity with the gospel. And Paul says, that's the gain The gain is the behavior itself. The gain is you used to do all of these twisted, sinful, morbid, perverted things. And now you don't. That's the gain. So you don't don't restrain your sin impulses in order to gain materially from God. You recognize that your righteousness comes as a gift from God Through Christ, it's an alien righteousness, which I'm not going to re-preach this morning, but it's an alien righteousness, that is, it comes from outside of you, it comes from God himself, and it becomes yours, and that motivates godly living. That's the gain of the gospel. And when you reflect on who you were versus who you are, there's your contentment. Your contentment is in the gain, and the gain is godliness. So godliness is not a means of gain. Godliness is the gain. Paul then uses our verse, but right before our verse that we're looking at today, our resolution, he said, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Have you thought much on that? Every one of us was born into this world naked. We had nothing. And we're going to die and we'll take nothing with us except godliness. There's the gain. Blessed are you if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. There's the gain. A righteousness that doesn't belong to you but is given to you. How? jesus takes our sin into his body on the cross and he gives us his righteousness there's the gain. and if you have that then your name is written in the lamb's book of life which means you will be raised from the dead and you will not be condemned there's the contentment paul goes on if we skip over Verse 8 for a moment, and look at verses 9 and 10. Paul identifies the danger of seeking anything more than that. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves. With many pangs. Now, I know, okay, you have to, if you're preaching this verse, you have to make the point. It's not money that's the problem, it's the love of money. And you can have a lot of money and love money, and you can have no money and love money, and you're in the same problem. You're piercing yourself with the same pang. But let us not let ourselves off the hook so easily. We have money because we love money. It's just a fact. I love money, and so do you. The question is not whether or not we love money. The question is how much is our love of money piercing us with many pangs? And that's different for each one of us. So ask yourself, invite the Holy Spirit to reveal what you've been hiding from yourself. How much has your love of money robbed you of true contentment? I ask myself that question. few months ago, I wrote, maybe it was half a year ago, I wrote a blog article called Don't Be a Demas. Demas was one of those co-workers in the gospel with Paul and with Luke. And eventually, he says, well, I'm not going to continue in the gospel. Probably because Paul was talking to him about things like you came into the world with nothing, you're going to leave with nothing. And so he's Demas eventually said, I I just don't want it. And Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted us and gone to Thessalonica. In my blog post, the the great question I had then, which I still have now, is would Demas have to depart from us To get what he found in Thessalonica, or could he have what he went to get in Thessalonica and still be counted among our number? I don't think Demas would have to defect from the Canadian church. I don't think that he would have to choose between whatever it was that he got in Thessalonica and his love of the gospel. I don't think we require that of ourselves. So Demas would have loved the Canadian church and he would have died thinking that he was all right with the Lord, not knowing that the entire time he was in love with this present world. So the question again is not whether or not you and I and all of us in this room love money, but how much has our love of money pierced us with many pangs? Seeking riches instead of godliness is a dangerous misadventure. Very dangerous misadventure. And you know why we're not being hauled off to prison yet? Do you know why we're not shedding our blood because we love the Lord Jesus yet? Because the devil is content to have us in a pot of materialism. And once that stops working, then the persecutions will come. He doesn't care if he gets us to defect from Christ by lavishing us with riches or if he scares us out of the church by threatening to spill our blood. And the love of money is a spiritual poison that we're all drinking. So this brings us to our verse. And I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to lay anything too heavy on anyone. We're all in this together. I'm in this. You're in this. We're all in this together. We're not looking for perfection. But how, this is where the resolution comes in, how can we individually and as a church make progress? That's it. Just progress. One small step after another. So this brings us to our resolution in verse 8 if we have food and clothing with these we will be content oh how wonderful it would be if that was true of us and the only way that food and clothing is enough for us is if we derive most of our pleasure and contentment from the gospel and from the work of the kingdom If we love the gospel and if we give ourselves to the work of the gospel and we enjoy giving ourselves to the work of the gospel and we work at our day jobs so that we could fund our work of the gospel, that's the only way that this is ever going to become true of us. You know, Jesus teaches along these same lines. Paul wasn't inventing something new. The thing about Jesus is it's very hard to do the things that he says, and so we just sort of, he evaporates into a very thin version of himself in most of our minds in worship and devotion. This is really hard, what I'm about to read you from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wow. That's not easy. He doesn't say, you know, you should probably have a little less. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Is anyone having Jesus over for lunch this afternoon? You ever have that moment where you're, you realize your spouse has invited someone over for lunch and your house is a disaster and you're embarrassed to have that person over? I think we'd all be very much in that kind of a boat, only worse if Jesus actually showed up and says, I'm coming to your house for lunch. Why? Well, because, and again, it's not that I want us to be asceticists, I don't want misery, uh, but we've got nice houses. There's, on the one hand, nothing wrong with that, but I wonder if we would be compelled, like Zacchaeus, to say, Well, I've got to give something back. Our houses show that we are laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Verse 21 is especially interesting to me. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why didn't Jesus say it this way? Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Why why does He say it in that order? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How is that different, and why didn't Jesus say, Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also? Because that's also true. Your treasure reveals where your heart is. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, Where your treasure is, there's where your heart will be. I think he's just trying to help us. How do we do this? How do we make progress? We don't wait for our hearts to lead our treasure. We need to allow our treasure to lead our hearts. We love the things we invest in. Therefore, even before you love the kingdom, even before you love the local church the way the Bible says you ought to, even before you love the gospel work and the kingdom work, invest in it and your heart will begin to change. just to prepare you, there is a pretty significant gut punch coming later in the sermon along these lines. So this is my resolution. It's my resolution for myself, for my family, and for us as a church. But I can't make that decision. You have to decide. But wouldn't it be great if together as a church we said that we want to make 1 Timothy 6, verse 8, more true of us as a church at the end of 2020 than it was at the beginning. Do you know we can actually do this and we can actually measure this? So how are we going to do this? Let me give you seven practical ways that we can actually do this. And number two is the gut punch. Number one, Do not wait for your heart to switch allegiances. Move your treasure and trust your heart to follow. I don't know what your spending patterns are. We're not about to start policing that. You can be thankful for that. This is not about us trying to legislate. This is not about us policing where you spend your money. Uh, But you, you know where you spend your money. So the first way that we can make progress on this is we don't wait till we desire to invest more in the gospel. We begin to do it and we watch and we wait for our heart to change. Directly related to this, number two, are you ready for it? You could do this Sometime in January, sit down with your spouse or your family, however it works, and restructure your household budget so that you are working toward a 10% tithe in the local church. Here's the fact. We give as if each of us each household makes $44,000 a year. There might be one or two families. I don't know anyone's income, so I have no one in mind. But statistically, there might be one or two households where that is true. But we are giving to South Shore Bible Church somewhere between 3 and 6% of our income. which means we don't love the church enough. We just don't. We love our stuff more than the gospel work that is happening in and through the local church. It's just, just, just a fact. Now, not every family, right? Here's the, here's the other thing. Some families are giving, I imagine, I, I don't know, but I imagine some families are giving their 10% and more, which means some people, some families are giving maybe zero, or a 5 here, a 20 there. Some might be giving 1% or 2%. You know who you are. The primary way that the Bible says you invest in the gospel, the primary way that Christians invest in the kingdom and the gospel work is through the local church. So, so you might start by saying we are given to Compassions and World Vision and we're, we're digging a well in, in this African country. These are all good things. But biblically, those are not the primary way that God calls us to invest in the gospel and the kingdom work. The primary way is to invest through the local church. Imagine what we could do as a church if we actually tithe, because our budget would be more close to half a million dollars a year, rather than bouncing in and around 190,000 a year. Like we would at least get up to 400,000 if every family tithe, we would have a budget of 400,000 dollars a year. I'm guessing. This is an estimate. I'm not saying absolutely, but it would be around there if we did the math. Now, we've just been too soft-spoken and too diplomatic to actually call you out on this, but our treasurer puts the numbers up every members meeting. So, if you want to make progress on the resolution, right? If we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. Uh, if you want to lay up treasures in heaven, if you want your heart to be uh, entw- intertwined with Jesus Christ and the gospel, start giving money to South Shore Bible Church. Number three, these all go together. Oh, before we go to number three, let me just say, I, I understand that our, local, our, our household budgets, you cannot just flip the switch and go from giving 3% to giving 10% because you've established a budget where all your money is spoken for. I understand that. So we're not looking for all of a sudden a $400,000 year progress. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm preaching is progress, not not ultimate success, but it also means that some of the three through seven that I'm about to, to give you, you're going to have to sacrifice in other areas. It's a restructuring that needs to take place. You're not going to start tithing. Get, there's not going to be some money fairy that just drops more money in your lap so that you can give more money to, to bump up your percent. You actually have to do the hard work of redoing your budget and making sacrifices and cutting corners or, or making more money or uh, whatever it is. I don't know so yes I I understand there's a lot of practicalities that go into this progress is what I'm looking for number three this will help you to move toward a tithe purge unnecessary material possessions go take all of January or all of January and February and just start piling up all the things that you own that you don't need maybe you don't even want anymore Purge them by selling them or by giving them away. It's good for the soul. If you sell them, think about what are you going to do with the money that you raise by selling these possessions. Are you going to give it to the church? Or are you going to pay off debt? Or are you going to do something else? It doesn't matter. You have total freedom. Don't do what Ananias and Sapphira did though. Don't say you're going to give it to the local church and not give it to the local church. If you make that claim, if that comes out of your mouth, do it. But you don't have to. But Ananias and Sapphira, you'll remember, they sold their property, they told the church, they gave all the proceeds to the church, and Peter says, is that true? They said, yes, it's true. God struck them dead. So you're total freedom, what you do, but Step number three, purging unnecessary material possessions by selling selling them or giving them away is about redirecting your heart toward the things that matter. What you do with the money is between you and God. Number four, resist buying something that you can afford and give the equal amount of money to the poor or to the church. So you're out, you're in Best Buy, and you see that big TV that you actually have money to buy and it's not a sin to buy it but if you want to make progress in being content with food and clothing say well I actually have the means to buy this I don't need it I don't want it so I'm going to take that $600 and I'm going to give it to the church connect the two Resist buying something that you can afford and with that extra money, give it to the poor or give it to the church. That's not easy, is it? Now, maybe it's not a $600 TV, but maybe it's a scarf. that You you have enough scarves. So take the $30 and give the $30 to the poor or to the church. Number five. Now, this one's hard, but a good one. Not that the first four were real easy. Cancel some entertainment subscriptions and spend the time normally invested to prayer, reading the Bible, or community service. So you get a two for one there. You're not paying $10.99 to Netflix anymore and not only do you not have that money, like that money is not that much, right? That's how we justify it. What's you know Disney Plus comes in at 899. But this is about making small decisions that will eventually compound into big decisions. But the double feature of this one is now, instead of watching the real-life version of "Lady on the Tramp," which I did, um, you can go and read the Bible, or you can pray, or you can volunteer, or you can have someone over to your house. So cancel some entertainment subscriptions. What kinds of things are we talking about? Netflix, Disney+, Apple, Spotify. I don't know what else there is. MLB uh, apps. There's all kinds of apps. Uh, what is that one where you have different like, candies that you line up and you get points if you can line three in a row? Like Candy Crush or something? Like get rid of it. You know, get ri- it's only $2, but it, this is about re- reforming our hearts Cancel at least one entertainment subscription. You don't have to. This is just a recommendation. Cancel one entertainment subscription. Give the money to the church and invest that time in prayer, reading the Bible, or some other kind of community service. Number six. Prioritize South Shore. What do I mean by this? This does not mean that you need to come to everything. Everything. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to miss a Sunday. It doesn't mean you can't go on family vacation. It it, it doesn't mean that you you can't do other things. It doesn't mean you have to be at every study even. But make the local church the center of your life. You say, well, what does this have to do with money? It's about re-knitting your heart. The more time you spend with us, the more inclined you might be to give your money to the church. Make South Shore number one and everything else is second. There's a conflict between discipleship opportunity and some extracurricular event. Stop the extracurricular event. You don't have to. This is just a recommendation. Uh, Number seven, this is the last one. Take a personal inventory of your possessions and seriously discuss, Uh, seriously discuss. It's on the table. If a downsize would be beneficial to your soul and to your witness. What, What do you mean a downsize? Well, whatever it is. We all have stuff. We have houses, cars, TVs, Boats, all kinds of things. It's not sinful to own any of it. But seriously discuss with your family if a downsize would be of benefit to your soul and to your witness. On this, a little anecdote, Angela and I downsized once, and it was the worst decision of our life. (laughs) So you want to be careful. Don't be reckless. Take months to make this decision. But what you want to ask is, if we made this decision to downsize, could we, could we still live a good life? Could we, could we be content? Could we give more to the church? Would it redirect our, our heart toward the gospel and the kingdom? So you need to ask those kinds of questions and make an informed decision. Do not do it on an ascetic whim. I'm going I'm to suffer for the gospel. That's not what we're talking about here. If we make progress on this resolution, there's no suffering. There's greater contentment in the right things. So I'm not... I'm not trying to guilt anyone into anything. I'm not trying to force people to downsize. And here's the other option. If you have a beautiful property, maybe you don't downsize, but maybe you say, I need to use this for the kingdom more than I am. Maybe we could benefit from your house a little more than we are. Or, or your holiday home, or, or whatever toys you have, grown-up toys. Whatever it is that you have, it, you could either get rid of it or you could use it for the kingdom more. Use it for the church. Use it for your witness. So do not leave the, today with any kind of legalism hanging over you like a sword. Uh, but seriously, talk about these things. And the big one is the tithe. This is what we can measure. If we're not coming in at $250,000 taken in, like $250,000 in our budget would get us up around 6 or 7% of our income. If we're not at $250,000, then we've made no progress. So there it is, 2020. It's going to be a banner year. I feel it. And... These things are not easy. We're not looking for perfection, but let's all strive for progress because we will be more contented and we will save ourselves from piercings of many pangs. Let's pray. God, I pray, I pray that you would help us all. I mean, w- the world is in our veins. We do love money. It's true. Please forgive us but also help us to redirect our love by investing in things that truly matter in this church, in the gospel, in the kingdom, in one another. And I pray as we do these things, slowly and carefully, but surely, I pray that you would raise the level of contentment in our joie de vivre as we draw closer to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are all the riches we need. In your name we pray, amen.